Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 56 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, when we left off, last left off when I recorded episode 55... Um, I told you guys that, yeah, I was having some uh, issues finding a new place to live. Um, we are in the process of trying to land a an uh, apartment, which is actually close to the apartment complex I live now. So hopefully we will have this more or less locked in by the end of the week. We shall see. I have my fingers crossed, toes, eyes, arms... Uh, feet, whatever, everything I can cr- actually cross. Um, let's see, aside from that, um, I had a nice little shift at the arcade in Brighton on Saturday. Of course, with the weather being so nice, everybody was out doing stuff, so it was kind of dead, but that's okay. You know, before I clocked in, I tried playing uh, Robotron. I was doing okay right up until something happened with the video on the uh, circuit board because all the colors went weird and the game is pretty much unplayable in its current state so um i basically left a note for our tech and hopefully when he comes in on friday he'll note that notice that in the logbook and he'll look into seeing what he can do to fix it um aside from that and i also played asteroids just before i clocked in and i got a score of almost 64,000 points i'm really proud of myself um for that because i haven't put that kind of a score on an asteroids machine in years and you know it's nice to know that yeah i've still got it a little bit um aside from that i just you know clocked in said goodbye to my coworker who had to leave immediately and then just did my shift and it wasn't too bad you know like I said it was kind of dead but you know some people were in and they were having fun and it's always good to see people have fun uh let's see on the home gaming front um let's see I'm playing still playing the division 2 still playing uh Nova Drift I played some Neon Sundown I've been playing Streets of Rage 4 um, I'm considering getting the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. I've seen people streaming it, and it's one of those games that, just like the Konami arcade counterparts, it's a lot more fun of a game when you're playing with more than one person. So, we'll see about that. I may get it, I may not. I'm still on the fence about it. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, that's right, I bought a, um, a new game called... Uh, 20 minutes to sunrise i think it's called and it's an interesting game for sure it's pretty much like nova drift and um, vampire survivors that's what it is um there have been like a rash of roguelite uh games lately and that's fine i don't have a problem with it um as long as they're good i mean you know 20 minutes to sunrise 20 minutes till dawn that's what's called 20 minutes till dawn um it's not a bad game although you are at a severe disadvantage when you're first starting it um when you haven't unlocked the other characters yet so you know i'll play it and i'll see what what goes on with it let's see what else i've been playing like i said yeah i play neon sundown 
been playing Battletech a little bit. Um, let's see. Uh, trying to get back into Star Trek Online, like I said a couple of episodes ago. I'm considering trying to get back into Star Wars Squadrons and uh, Project Wingman, if only to complete those games. But, you know, once I kind of lose interest in a game, you know, it's a little difficult to ramp that interest back up unless something comes along that really, uh, really makes me want to play it again. So, you know, that's kind of how it is. Um, like I said, up until we get our new place to live and we get settled in, all arcade visits and stuff are on hold for now. I'm hoping to restart that up if I get the new place when I'm supposed to, which is supposed to be the end of August. Um, I figure it'll take maybe two or three months to get settled in, so probably right around November, um, middle of November, I'm probably going to uh, resume going out to various places and, you know, just to see what's what. I may end up going back up to Bay City to go back to uh, Crazy Quarters. Um, apparently, that the place has undergone a massive renovation, so... Yeah, and considering that I have a review of that coming up, I better at least, uh, I better at least, uh, you know, see what's going on up there before I decide to put that out in an episode. So, as always, stay tuned. Um, let's see, I actually do have a, a direct message on my Instagram, and it is from Kevin H., uh, who is one of the, um, actual contributors to the show him and uh benjamin uh they give me money to do this <laughs> um and that money is going to go towards um arcade visits in the area i think one of them's going to finance uh my little detroit run because there's like three places in detroit that i want to go to and go back to so um that's probably what i'm going to end up doing but anyway kevin writes wrote me on facebook um, I think it was yesterday, so here we go. He says, As always, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to the podcast. It was sure a good time uh, hearing about all of your Chicago adventures. Keep the episodes coming, please. <laughs> Request fulfilled, uh, Kevin. Um, hopefully I can keep this going. Like I said, my main goal is to get to 100 episodes, and we'll see where we go from there. So, to continue. I have a request, but first a little backstory. My folks took me and my annoying siblings on a vacation somewhere in the late 80s to what I think was some sort of island resort. My, reco my recollection of the location is hazy to say the least. I do, however, re clearly recall one aspect. As we walked into the minuscule and nondescript lobby, I saw one glorious solitary arcade cabinet. A wonderful surprise. I ended up spending many hours standing there instead of enjoying the idyllic beach paradise. Such are the life choices of an arcade addict, as you likely know too well. Oh yeah, Kevin. <laughs> Preach, brother. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I could go into something, but I won't. Let's just continue the uh, DM. Um, I had never seen this game before. It was a horizontal scrolling foot racing game depicted in wild psychedelic colors. At first I was all, what is this weird nonsense? But I quickly found it to be challenging and quite unique. It was called Mystic Marathon. I would love to hear your take on the ga that game if you have any experience at all with it. I still to this day think of it quite fondly. 
my time spent racing around with odd creatures on their digital islands when I should have been exploring the actual island I was visiting. Um, if I could go back and relive that trip, I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you for your DM, Kevin. And, yeah, I get it totally. <laughs> um, I think it was, what? Oh, what, 1984? Yeah, it was 1984 when um, we went to, um, where did we go? We went to Youngstown, Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that was like my grandfather's side of the family. And we had a family reunion out there. And yeah, I mean, the second we put down in Youngstown, we got to the hotel and we checked in and we got our stuff in the... Um, in our room, we, I immediately just peaced out and started arcade hunting. <laughs> I didn't actually find an arcade. I did find them all. But, um, the thing was, is that I found that mall had, uh, Star Trek three, the search for Spock in it. And, you know, I was just like, all right, this is cool. And so after we did all our activities, um, Sunday, or not Sunday, on Saturday uh, afternoon, um, while everybody was, uh, you know, resting and getting ready for the big, uh, you know, uh, get-together in the ballroom, I went to that mall and I went and saw the movie. I do remember that, but yeah, that's the thing. If I'm, if I'm in, when at that age, when I was in a new area, I always wanted to check and see if there was, like, an arcade somewhere around. I mean, hell, I did it when I first moved up here to Michigan. I told you guys about that. So, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from, Kevin. And once again, thank you for the DM. And like Kevin, if you want to get a hold of me, there are various ways to do it. Uh, the easiest way is actually through email, and that is at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there's a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. And like Kevin did, he got a hold of me on Instagram. Um, I am uh, arcadeaddictbrian at Instagram. I am the most active there. Uh, there and Facebook are like the two places, although I do have presences elsewhere. Um... On Facebook, you just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. If you put in Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast in the search bar, it'll take you to the discussion group. I keep forgetting to post a question. I'm good. I promise I will do it after I'm done with this recording this episode. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Arcade Addict underscore B. Like I said on Instagram, I am at Arcade Addict Brian. And on Tumblr, I am at... Uh, tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict so there you go multiple ways of getting hold of the show and like kevin did and i thank you again for it kevin you can get a hold of me you know share a story ask a question about a game oh oh i'm an idiot i completely forgot about the game kevin i never actually saw this game until you mentioned it and once i mentioned it i was like that I've never heard of this game at all, and so just out of curiosity, I fired up my emulator, and I typed Mystic in the uh, search bar, and it came up, Mystic Marathon. 
I actually played a game before I started recording, and I'm like, yeah, I can see wh where this is. This is, like, really, really weird, and the colors are psychedelic, like you said, and yeah, it's an interesting game. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a bad game. I didn't know Williams made it. I was a little shocked when I found out about that. Mystic Marathon was made by Williams and released in arcades in 1983. I had never, ever, ever seen it. Not anywhere. Not even Galloping Ghost, I mention it, but there's so many arcade games that Galloping Ghost in cabinets that it's very easy to miss something. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I played it, and yeah, it's really, really quirky. I agree with you 100%. It's really quirky. But, yeah, it's it's a game I'll, I'll check out more in more detail um, as I have the time to do so. So, thank you for that, Kevin. Okay, with all that done, let's get right on to the show. I've got... Uh, several topics to talk about, so let's get right to what we've got going on, and that is Top 10s. Top 10s, fighting games. Okay, I admit it, I'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to fighting games. The ones that drew my attention and got the most money from me were games that were true tests of a gamer's skill and not just repetitive cheeseball techniques or combo machines. I mean, not that you could not cheese your opponent massively in these games in my top 10, but when you had two players who truly fought each other in the game and used true technique, it made for a fun game to watch as well as play. Um, like I said, these are in no particular order. I just put these down as they came to me. And we can just go right to it, because, yeah, I've got a little bit to say about each one. Okay, first is a three-way tie. Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition, and Street Fighter 2 Turbo. Okay, now, Street Fighter 2 was a massive improvement over the first game, which, to be honest, was absolutely terrible. Uh, the original game was a great idea and concept, but the execution was really, really lacking. Um, I don't think the... Um, hardware was capable at the time in 1987 when Street Fighter came out. I mean, they didn't correct that until, what, Street Fighter 2 came out in, what, 1991, I think? So, yeah, it was like four years. Yeah, so when Street Fighter 2 first hit the arcades, people were using not just choose to beat each other, but the entire state of Wisconsin. Uh, the biggest thing I saw as far as cheese techniques were, people would take either Ryu or Ken, they would do a jumping jab attack into um, four or five crouching short kicks to dizzy you, or if you blocked it and you didn't uh, respond in the right way at the right time, they would just go right. they would just go right into a throw. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But uh, this was what made me shy away from playing anybody and anybody who asked to play me while I was playing it and learning how to play the characters, I'd say no to. You know, so, you know, that's just how it was. Um, now, Champion Edition is my favorite fighting game, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, once I learned how to play Sagat correctly and use his reach to play defensively, even before I learned his special moves, I was an instant convert. Um, I like that Capcom started making Ryu and Ken different fighters now. Uh, then they balanced out the gameplay a lot better, uh, the expanded storyline for each of the characters, 
and this game was where my bread was buttered for a long time and still continues to be um the uh pinball pete's has uh a champion edition machine right next to their regular street fighter machine and and i always play champion edition when i'm there now street fighter 2 turbo i wasn't a huge fan of aside from the really cool expansive color palette for the characters um i was so used to playing champion edition that i couldn't get a lot of my techniques to work correctly when i played turbo because of the uh increased speed uh, some of the characters who got new moves and fought differently because of them, while the ones who didn't actually fought more intelligently and attacked with uncanny accuracy. The people who could beat the game on one or two credits earned my respect because the game made you earn your victories, and that was for sure. Okay, so that was a three-way tie. And actually, in episodes 58 and 59, I'm going to be going into Street Fighter 2 and Champion Edition going to be going more in depth on those games so as always stay tuned all right moving on super street fighter 2 now i like what capcom did here when it came when this game came out in 1993 you got four new characters and as an aside i remember my roommate saying that she wanted to punch james goddard in the face for creating dj who was by far the cheesiest character in the game and yeah he was he was a real pain in the butt to defeat, but yeah, once you figured out how, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, they tightened up the game balance even more, and my roommate and I would play each other in the arcades, at home on the Genesis, and we would both tear up the uh, tournament edition machine at uh, Fashion Square Mall Arcade, uh, and usually uh, one of us would be number one at the end, and the other would be number two. Um, this was probably the best version of Street Fighter 2, and I say that knowing that Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo would come out uh, in 1994. Okay, moving right along. Soul Blade slash Soul Edge. Um, I love this game because it was a welcome change from the fighters of the day. Not only just because it was a true 3D fighter, but also because the fighters fought with weapons. It made the game a lot more interesting. Um, it was radically different. The gameplay was fun once you figured it out, even if there was a block button, which was something of a bugaboo for me, as you'll probably hear uh, later on in this segment. Uh, the story was captivating, even though it was pretty simple. Um, I'm going to go into further detail on Soul Blade in an upcoming episode, so again, stay tuned. Okay, Mortal Kombat. Now, this game has been the rival to Street Fighter II since its own release in 1992. Um, I remember the commotions, the fatalities caused among the conservative uh, constituents of our country and claiming it was going to lead to kids becoming mass murderers or some nonsense like that. Um, I wasn't great at it because of one thing, which was the block button. Being a Street Fighter snob, I turned my nose up at it, even though pulling off fatalities was, was a ton of fun, especially when you were fighting somebody else. I will say this franchise had the better movie adaptations, though. <laughs> I mean, the only movie for Street Fighter that can even come close is the animated movie. <laughs> and, you know, but yeah, for a live action, yeah, Mortal Kombat has it down. And I'm not even talking about the recent remake either. I'm talking about the 1995 movie. Okay, moving right along. Karate Champ. This game is the granddaddy of the modern fighting game. I still remember to this day coming this close, and I'm holding my thumb and forefinger about a quarter inch apart, this close to beating this game back in 1984. 
the DNA is there for the modern fighting game from the fighters wearing red and white gi to the frantic action when two players would play each other. Anytime I see this game in my travels, I have to stop and play it. And that's just the truth. Uh, Samurai Showdown. Now, this game was very intriguing because I think it was the first fighter where all of the characters were armed with weapons and not just some like Mortal Kombat was. Uh, the gameplay took some getting used to because the engine was not as refined as it would be in later iterations. And that's the truth. I used to play Nakaru all the time. Okay, Marvel vs. Capcom 2. This was where the insanity reached its apex as far as the combat system went. You had an impressive selection of characters, a support character you could use to start combos, more insane tag team super combos, not to even mention the, the individual supers the characters had. You know, like Chun-Li's Super Mega Hyper Kikosho, anyone? Yeah, I used to love, like, defeating opponents with that. It was just a cool thing to see. Um, I went on a serious jag when this game first came out in 2000, but it waned fairly quickly um, because I couldn't make much progress in beating it. And also, if I remember right, I think it was, what, 2001? Some No, it was right around 2001 when uh, the only place I knew of who had a machine shut down, which was uh, Church Street Station Arcade. So yeah, that's uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 2. Uh, Street Fighter Alpha slash Zero 3. Now, as much as I loved Alpha and Alpha 2, this game just had them beat by Country Mile. That's just my feeling on it. Um, you had new characters, more refined combat, an attack interrupt system, a guard break system, and three kinds of super combos. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, not only that, the storylines for each of the characters was a lot more involved and had mid-bosses to boot. I absolutely love Chun-Li's story as you went through the game with her, especially at the end where you see how Cammy came to be, and by the way, Cammy's storyline is just as intriguing but in a much different way. Uh, the game was so much fun that any time I saw it, I played it. I just so wish I could find one around here. We could definitely use one of those at the arcade in Brighton, that's for sure. I, now that I think about it, we've had more than one customer asking uh, when we were putting a Street Fighter uh, game back on the floor because we had a turbo hack for a while. That was before I started working there. But yeah, so that's uh, Street Fighter Alpha slash Zero Three. Uh, honorable mentions, and there are almost too many to mention, but I limited myself to several. Okay, Fatal Fury, Capcom versus SNK 2000, Street Fighter Alpha and Alpha 2, X-Men vs. Street Fighter, the first Marvel vs. Capcom, Gyar Kung Fu, and yes, it counts as a fighting game, as it was a Street Fighter ancestor in 1985, and Mortal Kombat 2 and 3, and Ultimate 3. So that's my top 10s with honorable mentions. Um, if you have a fighting game that you prefer, and you think it got short shrift by not being on this list, hey, hit me up, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. All right, so with that done, let's move right on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my head or chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe you're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. 
I'm not too old for this shit. You are not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Asteroids for the Atari 2600. Okay. Now, I tried finding some descriptive information for this game in an internet search, and I could not find any. Um, the Wikipedia page is canted a lot more towards the arcade game, and I understand that, even though they gave a little bit of information about the 2600 version. So I just did a little bit of... Uh, you know, I did a little bit of searching, and but I couldn't find anything. So, um, all I can do is talk about my experiences with it. Um, but first, we'll just give a little brief overview. Um, the Asteroids uh, adaptation uh, game port, if you will, for the 2600 came out in 1981. I think it was like the summer of 81, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the programmer was Brad Stewart. And it was a very successful uh, game adaptation. Of course it would, because number one, it's one of Atari's own games. And number two, it was actually pretty good, um, considering the limitations of the 2600. There has been, if I'm not mistaken, there's somebody who wrote a more faithful translation of Asteroids uh, for the 2600 um, you know, in emulation. I think I have it on my uh, my Stella list. So, you know, I played it a few times, and actually it's pretty good. It's not as good as the arcade, but then again, you know, what is? So, um, with the arcade smash hit that dethroned Space Invaders when it came out in 1979, it was only logical for Atari to port this game to the 2600. People were dying for it that much, I remember. I mean... I'm trying to remember. I think somebody told me once that, yeah, it was coming out and coming soon. I think I read that in a magazine or something, or a comic book or something like that. Um, let's see. Uh, the cartridge was released for sale in 1981. I think it was summertime, and it was almost as much of a hit at home as it was in the arcade. Um, this was one of the first 2600 carts that I got uh, after I got my Atari 2600 for Christmas of 81. Um, my mother purchased it for me after I told her that I was bored with Space Invaders. I think she paid the going price for it, which was somewhere around 30 bucks back in early 1982. Um, I only had half of the experience of the game because I was playing it on a black and white TV, but I was happy nonetheless. One of my favorite things I used to do while playing this game was throw in my 8-track tape of the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack that my aunt bought me for Christmas in 1980 and I would play it on repeat as I played the game. You know, it might have been a coincidence, it might not have, but I think I played better when uh, the classic track, The Asteroid Field, came on. Uh, I played on all the settings, which was such a bargain at the time. There were 66 variants of the game packed into one cartridge, which is, I think, like the most variants in an Atari cartridge, aside from Space Invaders. Space Invaders had 112 variants. I think this ha this was like the second largest. I could be mistaken about that. I should look it up, but you know, it's late and I'm lazy. Um, you can select the number of points you have to earn to get bonus ships. If you actually, there's an option where you can uh, not earn any bonus ships at all. That's like true expert. 
uh, slower, fast asteroids, uh, whether you want shields, uh, hyperspace, or a, a 180 degree flip of your ship, or nothing at all when you pull back on the joystick. I have memories of inviting a couple of friends over to my house on a snow day, and we would play asteroids for hours. They would get bored quickly, though, because I was so much better at it than they were. Um, this is a great port by Atari and Brad Stevens. And that's my little thing on uh, Asteroids for the 2600. If you've got more information on this game, hey, hit me up because I want to know about it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay, from there, let's move right on to Home Systems. There is no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Clear a path. I'm going home. Home Systems, the 3DO. Yes, indeed. This was a very, very interesting uh, video game console for sure. But, yeah, the history is quite unique, as I came to find out. So, let's get right into it. Once again, with thanks to Wikipedia for providing the information. The 3DO Interactive Multiplayer, also referred to as the 3DO System or simply 3DO, is a home video game console developed by the 3DO Company. Conceived by entrepreneur and electronic arts founder Trip Hawkins, the 3DO was not a console manufactured by the company itself, but a series of specifications originally designed by Dave Needle and R.J. Michael of New Technologies Group that could be licensed by third parties. Panasonic produced the first models in 1993, and further renditions of, of the hardware were released in 1994 by Gold Star, which is now LG Electronics, and in 1995 by Sanyo. Despite having a highly promoted launch, including being named Time Magazine's 1993 Product of the Year and being a host of cutting-edge technologies, the 3DO's high price and an oversaturated console market prevented the system from achieving success comparable to competing consoles from Sega and Nintendo. As a result, it was dis discontinued in late 1996. So let's do the history. Okay. The 3DO Interactive Multiplayer was originally conceived by the 3DO Company, founded in 1991 by Electronic Arts founder Trip Hawkins. The company's objective was to create a next-generation CD-based video game-slash-entertainment standard, which would be manufactured by various partners and licenses. 3DO would collect a royalty on each console sold and on each game manufactured. To game publishers, the low $3.00 a royalty rate per game was a better deal than the higher royalties paid to Nintendo and Sega when making games for their consoles. The 3DO hardware itself was designed by Dave Needle and R.J. Michael, who were designers of the Amiga and the Atari Lynx. Oh, that's interesting. They designed the Amiga. Wow. Uh, starting from an outline on a restaurant napkin in 1989. Trip Hawkins was a longtime acquaintance of Needle and Michael, and found that their design very closely fit his philosophy for architecture and approach, so he decided that, quote, rather than me start a brand new team and starting from scratch, it just made a lot of sense to join forces with them and shape what they were doing into what I wanted to be, end quote. The 3DO company lacked the resources to manufacture consoles and instead licensed the hardware to other companies for manufacturing. Trip Hawkins recounted that they approached every electronics manufacturer, but that their chief targets were Sony and Panasonic, the two largest consumer electronic 
companies in the world. However, Sony had already begun development on their own console, the PlayStation, and ultimately decided to continue to work on it rather than sign with 3DO. According to former Sega CEO Tom Kalinske, the 3DO company was engaged in very serious talks for Sega to become involved with the 3DO. However, it was passed on by Sega due to concerns over cost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Panasonic launched the 3DO with its FZ1 model in 1993, though Gold Star and Sanyo would later manufacture the 3DO as well. Uh, companies who obtained the hardware license but never actually sold 3DO units included Samsung, Toshiba, and AT&T, who went so far as to build a prototype AT&T 3DO unit and display them at the January 1994 Consumer Electronics Show. Licensing to independent manufacturers made the system extremely expensive. The manufacturers had to make a profit on the hardware itself, whereas most major game console manufacturers such as Sega and Sony sold their systems at a loss with expectations of making up for the loss with software sales. The 3DO was priced at $699 US, far above the competing game systems and aimed at high-end users and early adopters. Hawkins has argued that 3DO was launched at $599 and not, quote, higher myths that are often reported, end quote. In a later interview, Hawkins clarified that while the suggested retail price was $699, not all retailers sold the system at that price. Gold Star, Sanyo, and Panasonic's later models were, ex were less expensive to manufacture than the FZ1 and were sold for considerably lower prices. For example, the Gold Star model launched at $399. In addition, after six months on the market, the price of the FZ1 had dropped to $4.99, leading some to contend that 3DO's cost was not as big a factor in its market failure as is usually claimed. Hmm, interesting. Hawkins' belief that the 3DO system could be a dominant standard in a similar way to that achieved by the VHS video cassette format, along with several companies being able to promote the standard effectively against individual competitors with their own technologies, such as Sony and Betamax, in the context of VHS. It was also believed that companies would be more able to effectively compete by being able to leverage a common standard as opposed to having attract developers to individual formats, with Hawkins noting that this would be, quote, tough for Atari and Sony, end quote. Meanwhile, other products were not regarded as competitive threats. The Atari Jaguar was perceived as primitive and slightly better than a 16-bit system, and the Philips CDI was regarded as, quote, really obsolete by today's standards, end quote. Both 3DO and Philips, seeking to pioneer the broader concept of interactive entertainment, aimed to sell in the order of 1 million units during 1994 and into 1995. Hawkins claimed that the console was HDTV-capable and the company could use its technology for a set-top box. It was believed that the platform would appeal to cable companies seeking to provide digital interactive services, with broadcasts being accompanied by digital information, eventually leading to the development of video-on-demand service on what was described as a, quote, client-server interactive network, end quote, with an interactive networking trial having been announced in collaboration with U.S. West and Omaha, Nebraska, for the autumn of 1994. Computer Gaming World reported in January 1994 that 3DO, quote, is poised for an avalanche of software support to appear in the next 12 months, end quote, unlike the Atari Jaguar and Pioneer Laser Active. 
the magazine predicted that, quote, if 3DO's licensees can get enough machines and softwares out in the market, this could very well become the interactive gamer's next entry-level machine, end quote, and possibly, quote, the ideal plug-and-play solution for those of us who are tired of playing circuit board roulette with our personal computers, end quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really rough in the mid-90s. Let's just leave it at that. Um, to continue. Electronic Arts promoted the console in two-page advertisements, describing it as a technological leap and pro promising 20 new titles over the next 12 months. The launch of the platform in October 1993 received a great deal of attention in the press as part of the multimedia wave in the computer world at the time. Return Fire, Road Rash, FIFA International Soccer, and Jurassic Park Interactive have been slated for launch releases, but were pushed to mid-1994 due to the developer struggles with the then-cutting-edge hardware. Moreover, the 3DO company made continued updates to the console hardware almost up to the system's release, which resulted in a number of third-party titles missing the launch date, in some cases by less than a month, because the developers weren't left enough time to fully test them on finalized hardware. The only 3DO software available at launch was the third-party game Crash and Burn. Panasonic also failed to manufacture an ample supply of the console in time for launch day, and as a result, most, most retail stores only received one or two units. By mid-November, the 3DO had sold 30,000 units. The system was released in Japan in March 1994 with an initial lineup of six games. The Japanese launch was moderately successful with 70,000 units shipping to 10,000 stores. However, sales soon dropped and by 1995 the system was known in Japan as a host for pornographic releases. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, to continue. Uh, the 3DO's claim to the title of most advanced console on the market was lost with the 1995, although released in Japan in 1994, launches of the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn. The 3DO company responded by emphasizing the console's large existing software library, lower price, both the Panasonic and Gold Star models were $299 by this time, and the Promise successor, the M2. To assure co consumers that the 3DO would still be supported, the M2 was initially announced as an add-on for the 3DO. It was re later released that the M2 would be an entirely separate console, albeit one with 3DO backward compatibility. Eventually, the M2 project was cancelled. Unlike Panasonic, Goldstar initially produced only 3DO hardware, not software. This made it difficult to manage competitive price drops, and when the price of the Goldstar 3DO dropped to $199 in December 1995, the company took a loss of more than $100 on each sale. Goldstar tried switching to the usual industry model of selling hardware at a loss and profiting on software, but though a handful of Goldstar games were published for the 3DO, Goldstar's software development operation arrived too late to allow them to turn a profit on the 3DO. This lack of a pro profitable business model, combined with Panasonic acquiring exclusive rights to the M2 technology, were cited as the two chief reasons for Goldstar dropping support for the 3DO in early 1996. During the second quarter of 1996, several of 3DO's most loyal software supporters, including the software division of the 3DO company themselves, announced that they were no longer making games for the system, leaving Panasonic as the only company supporting active software development for the 3DO. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, the 3DO system was eventually discontinued at the end of 1996 with a complete shutdown of all internal hardware development and divestment of the M2 technology. The 3DO company restructured themselves around this same time, selling off their hardware division to become a multi-platform company focused on software development and online gaming. The initial high price is considered to be one of the many issues that led to the 3DO's failure, along with a lack of significant funding that larger companies such as Sony took advantage of. In an interview after the 3DO company dropped support for the system, Trip Hawkins attributed its failure to the model of licensing all hardware manufacturing and software to third parties. He reasoned that for a console to be a success, it needed to be a single strong company to take the lead in marketing hardware and software, and pointed out that it was essentially a lack of coordination between the 3DO company, Panasonic, and the 3DO's software developers, which had led to the console launching with only one game ready. Wow. Okay, and there are more articles in this entry about the license systems, you know, the hardware specifications, uh, the peripherals, the games. Um, you know what? Yeah, let's go to let's go to the reception real quick. Okay, reviewing the 3DO just prior to its launch, GamePro gave it a thumb sideways. They commented that the 3DO is the first CD-ROM system to make a real jump forward in graphics, sound, and game design. However, they questioned whether it would soon be rendered obsolete by the upcoming Jaguar CD and Project Reality later released as the Nintendo 64, and felt that there were not yet enough games to justify a purchase, recommending that gamers wait several months to see if the system would get a worthwhile library of games. The 3DO was awarded Worst Console Launch of 1993 by Electronic Gaming Monthly uh, in a special Game Machine Cross review in May 1995. Famicom Sushin would score the 3DO Real Console at 26 out of 40. Next Generation reviewed the 3DO in late 1995. They noted that due chiefly to its early launch, it had a larger install base and, a more, and more high-quality games than the newly launched Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation, making it a viable alternative to those systems. However, they debated whether it could remain a serious contender in the long run in light of the successor M2's imminent release and the Saturn and PlayStation superior hardware. They deemed the 3DO hardware as overhyped, but still very good for its time, equally praising the DA, DMA engine. They gave it a 2 out of 5 stars, concluding that, quote, it has settled out as a solid system with some good titles in its library and more on the way. The question that must be answered, though, is this. Is having a good system enough? End quote. Citing a lack of decent exclusives and an astronomical asking price, in 2009, game website IGN chose th- the 3DO as its 22nd greatest video game console of all time, slightly higher than the Atari Jaguar, but lower than its four other major competitors. The the Super Nintendo, which was 4th best, the Sega Genesis, which was 5th, the PlayStation, which was 7th, and the Sega Saturn, which was 18th. On Yahoo Games, the 3DO was placed among the the top 5 worst console launches due to its one-game launch lineup and high launch price. Gaming retrospectives have also accused the 3DO of having an abundance of poor quality interactive movies. Trip Hawkins' business model for selling the 3DO was widely derided by industry figures. Let's see. Uh, okay, and that's pretty much it. All right. So, like I said, there's more to this article if you want to look it up on Wikipedia. 
But yeah, that's pretty much where I'm going to stop. Alright, my own experiences with it. Okay, the only real experience I had with this system back in the day was when I would go to the mom and pop video game store that my roommate worked at and always ask to play AD&D Slayer. It basically was a port of AD&D Dungeon Hack uh, for the PC, and I just couldn't get enough of it. it. I mean, it actually looked better than Dungeon Hack did. Um, at the time, I thought the system was horribly expensive compared to the systems that had gone before, and indeed, the systems that were just around the corner, such as the PlayStation. I did end up buying a 3DO, I think, in 2010 or so on eBay, because I wanted to have a copy of Slayer for it. I would tell you exactly when, but alas, my old eBay account got hacked and I could not recover it. Uh, but after I got the system and confirming, confirming its operational status, I think I went on a two-month jag playing Slayer. I think the system was a placeholder, historically speaking, because once the PlayStation came out with its superior hardware, almost everything else was suddenly lacking. I like the system well enough, and it's currently buried in my bedroom closet. When we move to the new place, I fully intend on bringing it out and displaying it along with the other systems I have purchased over the years. And that's the 3DO. The history and my experiences with it. Um, if you have a 3DO and you and you think it was the bee's knees, hey, get a hold of me and tell me why. Brian at gmail.com and lastly, we're going to go on the road. Uh, this was a recording I did on June 4th of 2020. Um, just, I think it was basically, um, if I remember correctly, it was just something that came to me while I was working one day. And so I opened up my recorder on my phone, hit record, and I started yapping. So let's get in the car and let's take a drive. <laughs> Hey folks, Brian here, and this is another segment of On the Road. Um, usually when I'm at my first job like I am right now, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not even really thinking. I'm usually listening to podcasts or music um, every once in a while, just as I'm driving from location to location, you know, my mind kind of comes up with something. Um, this time, I wanted to go into a little more in depth about what I call an arcade experience. Um, as you guys know, I've been doing this podcast for almost two years now. Um, basically, you know, what I think a good arcade experience are the five criteria in my arcade review location, selection, functionality, ambiance, and value. All five of those combine to make either a good, average, or in some cases, bad arcade experience. And any one of those five criteria can kind of tip the scales a little bit, you know, towards good, bad, or indifferent. 
depending. Um, but just to go into a little more depth on what I think a good arcade experience is, um, when you walk in the door, I mean, the first thing that should hit you is the sounds of the games being played. Um, the arcade and brightness like that. I mean, like I've said a thousand times, the arcade and brightness is in this like smallish uh, store, you know, standalone store uh, building um, with two floors. And the last time I was there before COVID hit, which I think was sometime in February, I think. Um, you know, when you walk in the door, you hear all those machines. You hear the classic arcade games. You hear, you know, the newer games like Star Wars Battle Pod and, um, you know, a couple of the Japanese imports they've got. You hear the classic arcade games. You hear the pinball machines. And it, like, all combines. And also you hear over top of it, sort of, you hear the music coming through the PA, although it's not very loud because... I've said it before, they'd have to crank that music to drown out the sounds of the arcade itself. But, um, you know, it's just, that's what should hit you the moment you walk in the door. It's like you hear, you know, the, the game, you hear the games either in attract mode or in, uh, or people playing them and so forth and so on. You know, you hear, like, the laughter of the kids who are, you know, just having a grand old time. You hear the occasional, you know, exclamations of, you know, the older players like myself who either are, you know, happy that something positive happened or a little pissed off that something negative happened and so forth and so on. Um... You know, and then, you know, as you look around, of course you see the machines. I mean, that is the backbone of a good arcade, of course. That goes without saying, that the machines have to be there. I mean, I've said it, you know, in several episodes where to be, to have a really good arcade, you have to have the games. They have to look the business. They have to be in, you know, decent condition and they have to work well. Um... Nothing annoys me more, and this is something that Pinball Pete's is guilty of, and if I really wanted to revisit an arcade review with Pinball Pete's, they get some lower points because, you know, on, you know, and I would take it straight out of functionality because they have had machines in there that have not worked 100% correctly for years. And when I, like, let's take the Galaga Ms. Pac-Man 25th anniversary machine as an example. Most of the time when I go into Pinball Pete's, usually before my car finally, you know, broke down for good, um, I would go in there when I was, I would go there when my car was getting fixed or if I was, like, done with home care and I just wanted to decompress for a little bit before I went home. Those are usually the two main scenarios why I go to Pinball Pete's. Aside from the times where I take my son and let him run around. Um, but there are two machines in that place that need to be fixed and that have not been fixed. 
those are the Robotron machine, and I've talked about it in various segments, including on the road. I've talked about it. And uh, the uh, Galaga machine, uh, one of the, the fire button sticks. And if you're going to play Galaga and you are anything approaching a master at the game, and in my opinion, being a master at Galaga means you can you can basically run at the very least 500,000 points without thinking about it. But quite honestly, if you can run 500,000 points on Galaga, you can run a million. I mean, the major challenge for me when I play Galaga these days is to straight nine it. And I have straight nine that Galaga machine uh, at Pinball Pete's. But yes, the fire button sticks. And it's a major, major annoyance because in order to play Galaga and play it well, even though it's a machine that has the uh, super fast shots, which is just as much of a hindrance sometimes as it is a benefit, in my opinion, but you have to have a properly functioning fire button in order to be able to um, be able to use your firepower correctly to keep yourself number one from getting so many enemies on the screen in the you know later stages of the game where they start dive bombing you like seven eight at a time and then you've got problems because now you're having to dodge fire now you're having to you know deal with if there are certain uh number of uh, enemies on the screen, or you know, enemies on screen or less. When they go down, uh, they go uh, down on the bottom of the screen, and they reappear at the top. They come down super fast, and and they're all the while they're doing their attack runs and attack patterns, and they're throwing bombs at you from wherever you're at on the screen, and so forth and so on. And when you have like more than five moving super fast chances are, no matter how good you are, I'd say the chances are at the very least 50-50 you're going to lose a life in that situation. Uh, but anyway, um, um, but yeah, so the fire button sticks. And there was one time I played it and I was really annoyed because they hadn't fixed it. That fire, that fire button has stuck on that game for the better part of, I want to say, two years, if not three. And you know, uh, there was one time where I went to the I went to the counter and I talked to one of the guys. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and I talked to one of the guys and he said, you know, he's like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And basically, he put a credit on the machine and he's like, well, you know that you can play like Turbo Pac-Man on this machine, right? And then he puts in the code which switches over Miss Pac-Man to Pac-Man. And I played that, and I was just like, okay, I see what's going on here. That basically you just get, you just put that credit on the machine to shut me up. That it's not like, well, okay, you know, I'll make a note of that and we'll see about getting it fixed, which would have more than mollified me. I didn't even want to get my money back, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Considering back in the back in the 80s, I always was trying to scam the various arcade operators saying, hey, yeah, that took my quarter. And I'd say probably three chances in ten, I'd get a quarter out of it. 
Um, but, uh, so yeah, that kind of stuff takes away from the arcade experience when, you know, you want to play a game and, and in the case of Pinball Peach, you're paying 50 cents for it, you know, which is, um, like I've said a thousand times on the show, it's an, a major, it's a major annoyance to me. You know, there are just some machines that should not be 50 cents. They should not be. I could understand it from, say, like Street Fighter 2 forward in uh, a time sense, like from 1991 or 1992 forward. I get that because almost every game that came out probably starting in like, I'd say probably 80, 88, 87, 88, I would say. Um, every machine would start out 50 cents, then after about three months, six months, a year maybe, it'll get changed to a quarter. And maybe I'm living in the past. It's quite, it's entirely possible. You know, I'm 51 years old. There are some people out there, and some people who listen to the show probably think I'm just an old man yelling at a cloud. But hey, you know, it's like I've said, there are ways to... Uh, run an arcade where you don't have to, I'm not saying gouge, but you don't have to charge that much to play, you know, uh, a 20, almost 30 year old game, almost 40 in some cases. So yeah, it sort of sticks in my craw a little bit. But um, like I said, you know, a good arcade experience has a good balance between the five criteria I came up with, the ones I think that are important, that you get your money's worth for, you know, the money that you, you, the money that you spend, you get a good experience, like, you know, the arcade machines aren't, like, set to the maximum difficulty in order to run you off the machine or make you, uh, pay more money to continue playing like the News Corner did, you know? Most of the arcades, when growing up in Connecticut, they were fair. Most of them. Um, you know, uh, you they weren't... The uh, difficulty settings weren't maxed out. Tromo Mall didn't do that. Uh, Spanky's didn't do that. Milford Rec didn't do that. Um, they all gave you a fair experience for the money that you spent there, which is probably something that spoiled me a little bit, you know, especially now that I'm sort of you know, rediscovering, you know, my arcade love and sharing all my experiences and, um, you know, past, present, and future with you guys. So, yeah, when I feel like I'm not getting the, even the 50 cents worth that I may pay for to play a game, yeah, it, it bugs me. That's just how it is. That's just, that's just the kind of person I am. So let me go and deliver my stuff into the lab. I will be back shortly. So, yeah, I mean, just the arcade experience is, you know, when you walk in the door, you hear the sounds, you know, it's sort of, if you're an old gamer like me, you know, it takes you back. You know, it just takes you right back to when you were 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And you've got five, ten, twenty dollars in your pocket, and you're looking for, you know, looking forward to 
spending some money and having some fun. You know, that's part of it, you know, especially for the older players like me. You know, it just sort of takes you back to that time. Um, the second thing, like I said, you know, yeah, the machines have to look decent. They don't have to be in pristine condition, but they should look halfway decent. They should work. I mean, that's what I give credit to um, the arcade in Brighton for is that, yeah, they make sure that their machines are working and they listen when people tell them, hey, something's wrong with this machine. It does take a little while before stuff is fixed, but at the very least, they're listening to their customers. As a matter of fact, I need to see about going by there just to see if they're still in business or if they've completely shut down. I mean, I haven't seen anything on Facebook about it, you know, either way, to be honest. So, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned, but not really. Um, but to continue, um, I mean, part of the, it's like I've said, part of the ambiance is actually playing the music from the era of the games that are in the arcade. That is a major step. That's a, that's just, I mean, especially nowadays when you can just go on Spotify and say, you know, type in like 80s music and it'll come up with a playlist of you know, a couple hundred or a couple, even a couple thousand songs from, you know, the 80s, you know, from the decade of the 80s, which I personally think was one of the best decades for music in human history. I mean, the 60s were important. The 70s, eh, 70s were kind of hit and miss in a lot of ways, but I think the 80s sort of you know, with the advent of certain new, new types of music and the popularization of other types, that all combined to make the 80s what it was, which was a great time for music. Um, but yeah, to have that music playing, you know, as you're going from machine to machine, play, you know, playing your games and having fun and, you know, reliving your childhood a little bit if you're my age or even older, um, that there you can't really put a price tag on that you know that's what makes an average arcade a good arcade and what makes a good arcade a great arcade in my opinion you know i've always said it you know especially when i'm talking about these arcades in arcade review you know and you know they're you know and have things other things around that you know you could kind of look at and say oh that's cool you know, like, I mean, I remember Milford Rec. Now, I haven't been to Milford Rec since 2000, since two, 2000, the year 2000. Um, or excuse me, I take that back, the, uh, 2004. That's the last time I was at Milford Rec, like the year before it closed down for good. Um, and... I remember the, the it's like it's permanently etched into my brain when you walk into the walk into Milford Rec and you see the token machines ahead of you and slightly to the right and then behind those and there's a, a a black metal railing going all the way around where the pool tables are and like I said, lining that area on like the slightly raised 
uh, level going all the way down the eastern wall and down the western wall are arcade games, you know, ranging from Space Invaders, you know, all the way up to like, I think it was like all the games between like 1978 and 1982, I think. And then also on that floor, when you walk in, there are machines also, you know, freestanding, like in a group of like three or something, or two or three, uh, that they would, they'd have those there too, because that's where Yair Kung Fu was when that came out in 1985. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then you turn to your right, like you're going into like the little, the little connecting area. Um, and you go and you go up to the main desk where, you know, if you wanted to rent billiard balls and play pool for like, you know, half an hour, that's where you get them. And, you know, behind the guy standing at the counter, you know, standing behind the counter, there was this uh, fairly large picture of the Manhattan skyline as taken somewhere uh, near either the Brooklyn Bridge or the, oh goodness, I can't remember the name of the other bridge and that's terrible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, basically it's the, I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge, as a matter of fact. It was one of those. It was taken like on ground level, uh, like several dozen yards, you know, in front of the bridge where you could see the World Trade Center. You know, you know, back in those days, this is one of those classic uh, pictures. And I was just like, you know, and that's just something that's just permanently etched into my brain. It always has been. As a matter of fact, I think I found that picture. It's like my uh, background screen on my phone because it reminds me so much of so many things back in the day. You know, it reminds me of, you know, how you know, how beautiful the New York City skyline was, especially at night when all the skyscrapers were lit up. And, you know, it reminded me of when we actually had the World Trade Center, you know, before the tragedy on December, or September 11, 2001. Um, I mean, every time I see a movie from like the 70s or 80s and they do that shot, you know, that long distance shot with the World Trade Center in it, there, I just, you know, have to heave a sigh because yeah, it was, you know, I mean, aside from the loss of life, which was horrific and the loss of property, which was on its own, you know, in its own way, just as horrific, you know, um, it's just one of those things that, you know, anytime I see it, I just sort of like, you know what I'm saying? You know, if you lived in New York City or anywhere near around in the tri-state area, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the arcade experience goes so far beyond the machines. It always has, in my opinion. It's like I said, there have been places that are bare bones, like um, the Lafayette Plaza Arcade and the Trumbull Mall Arcade. They're both bare bones. Uh, the walls were bare, you know, the floor was bare, it was, it, the Lafayette Plaza Arcade actually had, I think, I think they had, like, counters with, like, 
some video game memorabilia and some candy to you know to purchase I think I'm not 100% sure but yeah um, but yeah Trouble Mall Arcade was like just a you know just an arcade in a mall it was sort of like almost made as an afterthought or at the very least uh, who, when whoever uh, leased the storefront to put the arcade in uh, the mall you know the people who are managing the mall decide to put them like in a corner and that's the truth because I remember when I was doing the arcade rundown for Trommel Mall Arcade and I'm remembering how the arcade was laid out yeah that's exactly what they did they put that place in a corner uh, because it was in, basically in the north side of the arcade and there was no other stores past it. You know, once you got past the arcade, you basically were going into the, um, you were basically going down that long corridor to the double doors at the end of that corridor and you were out in the parking lot. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, in, at the on the one hand, yeah, it made the arcade easy to find, but yeah, it was, you know, yeah, it, they kind of just put that in the put it in the corner. <laughs> now that I think about it, um, but yeah, I mean, Trommel Mall Arcade was just bare bones. I mean, there's nothing to it. You know, I said it before. I said it in an arcade review. I mean, the only times that it was different was one time they actually used different colored fluorescent lighting like it was like a pinkish fluorescent lighting but it didn't work all that well and then then for I think like oh god I want to say a few months like three months or something like that where they shut the lights off and they just lit the arcade by the light of the monitor screens from the video games and by the lights of the pinball machines and you know that was a kind of cool thing but yeah it wasn't the same you know I mean at that point I think they were just you know trying to do something a little bit different and yeah I mean it it was okay for a little while but after a while it's sort of like eh not really you know it's not something that needs to be done all the time but anyway um you know I mean it, when it comes to I mean if I was going to construct my perfect arcade I mean, I don't think I could go as far as Galloping Ghost. I mean, I'm not saying Galloping Ghost is the gold standard for arcades because while they do it and do it well, there are a couple of places I've seen on, you know, online, I haven't been there in person, that do it a little better, even though they don't have the number of machines that Galloping Ghost has. Because, yeah, I mean... Galloping Ghost is like what? Right at right around 770 machines. You know, maybe as many as 775. But yeah, it's in there now. I mean, they're the largest video game arcade in the world. You know, there's no other place that can touch them, to be honest. And but the thing is, they do have other stuff there aside from the machines. I mean I've said it before, Doc Mac is a visionary. He knows. He has a real good knowledge on how to build and run an arcade and make it 
such a good experience that people are going to want to come back. And yeah, having the machines is like, you know, priority one. I mean, don't get it twisted. You know, you have to have the machines in order to be a legitimate arcade. I've said it a thousand times. But at the same time, you have to have more than just that. And to his credit, he has other things to look at aside from just the machines. Whether you're in his video game arcade or his pinball game arcade. You know, which are two separate buildings along the same street. And not only that, you know, he's smart enough to know that if I charge a slightly less, charge slightly less for both places as it would be if they, if someone purchased uh, a band for the arcade, then came down the street and purchased a band for the pinball arcade, that is even more incentive for them to come back another time. You know, Doc is a good businessman. He really is. You know, I mean, video game enthusiast for sure, but the guy knows how to run an arcade. And I give him all the credit in the world for that. Okay, I'm at a stop, so I'm going to pause it here if I can hit the right button. So hopefully I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. So um, just to continue my train of thought, even though it goes off on, you know, separate tracks constantly, <laughs> I mean, this is just who I am, folks, you know. I started talking about something, then another thought hits, I gotta expound on that, then I gotta drag myself back to the original thing. It's just who I am. If you've been listening to this podcast since episode zero, you know exactly how this goes. So yeah. Anyway, to continue. Um so I mean a good arcade experience, you know, it's just an amalgamation of a bunch of factors. You know, and not only that, it's also customer service, too. I mean, that's an overlooked part when it comes to video game arcades, is that, you know, having the staff to be able to, you know, assist you with a, you know, assist you with a problem and be able to do it even, I won't say with a smile on your face, even though a smile doesn't hurt, um, to be able to at least let the customer believe that whatever problem they have, that you are going to address it, you know, first, you know, at first opportunity, you know, rather than letting them believe that, you know, you just don't really give two craps about whatever your issue is with the machine here. You know, when I've had that happen too, and at the same place, Pinball Pete's. You know, where I've seen going, you know, just walking through the arcade, going from one machine to another machine on the other side of the arcade. And it's just seeing just someone just sitting behind the counter and they're just on their phone. You know, they're not looking around, you know, they're not looking to see if anyone's having any problems. You know, they're you know, on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever the hell they're doing, you know, and it's sort of like they're just getting paid to uh, browse the web and, you know, engage in, you know, social and social media. And that bugs me too. 
mean, yeah, if I was a, a manager of that place, I'd be like, look, I'd tell that person, look, I understand that that's important to you, but when you're on the clock, you're, you know, your time is important to me in that I need you to do your job. If you want to do your social media and you want to screw around on your phone, do it on your break. Just don't do it while you're on the clock and on the floor because customers can see you and whether or not you care, it, you know, it certainly leaves the impression that you don't care about your job. And if that's the end, if you honestly don't care about your job, then don't show up. I'll just find someone else who at least will give at least a little bit more of a crap about her job than you do. And that's where I'd leave it. You know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of managerial experience, I will say that. There have been some times where I've been put in charge and basically I just try to treat everybody fairly. It's like, hey, we got a job to do here and I need you to do your job. And if you're not gonna do your job, to my satisfaction as your manager, then we've got a problem. And that's just the way it is. But, you know, I've seen it there. I've seen it at the arcade too. Now that I think about it, the arcade Brighton, I've seen it there too. Where, you know, you know, just somebody, you know, someone's there just to take money and put the armbands on your arm and then, you know, off you go. And that's okay. But at the very least, I'd say probably at least once every like half an hour, 15 minutes maybe, you know, you just get out from behind the counter, you lock up the machine, you know, whatever cash register you got, you rock, lock everything up, and then you walk the floor for a few minutes just to make sure that, you know, people aren't having any sort of problems or issues. And if someone has an issue with the machine, you listen to them and you say okay um, I will I will shut this game off and I'll put an out of order sign on it and we'll take a look at it uh, when we have our tech come in and you know that's pretty much it you know you're basically at the very 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 least you're at least leaving the illusion that you care if you actually care you know, as opposed to actually caring, because you are listening to the opponent, the the opponent, the uh, customer's grievance, and you're taking steps to resolve that grievance. If it's a machine that doesn't work, yes, shut it off, put an out of order sign on it. That way, nobody else will mess with it, and that's just the way it is. And when your tech comes in, say, "Hey, can you check this machine over?" As a matter of fact, um, I've said it. Uh, when I talk about, you know, arcade runs at, uh, at the arcade, you know, because they've had a Super Pac-Man machine that just doesn't work correctly. Uh, I wonder if it's just a, an issue with putting it on free play or if it's something else on the, on the circuit board. But, yeah, they are just... That machine has never worked properly. I think in the five years that I've been going to the arcade, I think I've played Super Pac-Man maybe twice or three times, something like that. 
and it's just one of those things that just really kind of bugs me because I'm just of the opinion that if your machine, if a machine doesn't work, shut it off, and if that comes to worst, pull it off the floor. I mean, they did that with Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. I mean, I think when they first put their, the Dragon's Lair machine on the floor, their Space Ace machine on the floor, the Space Ace machine never worked. Uh, it never worked properly. Um, and then the Dragon's Lair machine didn't work properly. And I understand why, because those LaserDisc players are extremely finicky. You know, especially, you know, those early LaserDisc players from, you know, the early 80s, which Dragon's Lair and Space Ace ran off of, even though Space Ace didn't come out until, like, 1985. But, yeah, but in the end, they basically pulled those machines off the floor, they fixed them, and then they put them back on the floor. And the last couple times I've been to the arcade... You know, Dragon's Lair worked, Space Ace worked, it was all good. You know, but that's what you do. You know, in the end, you know, if you can't, if it's something that can't be fixed by a tech, you know, just basically pulling out the machine, going in the back, you know, opening up the back and, you know, fi you know fixing some, you know, fixing some chips or, you know, whatever else needs to be fixed and then just, you know, buttoning it back up and turning it back on and it works, yeah, pull that thing off the floor, by all means, but, you know, without any doubt, that's what you should do, I mean, it's, at the very least, it's showing that you care, you know, you care about, you know, what your customers are saying, like, saying, hey, yeah, this Dragon's Lair machine doesn't work, and it hasn't worked correctly since, you know, I've been coming here, and, you know, to their credit, it takes a while, because I think the Dragon Slayer and the Space Ace machines were off the floor for like six months or so. All I know is I went there once and the Dragon Slayer machine was completely turned off and the Space Ace machine, which was there at the time I went there before, was pulled off the floor. And then uh, several, like two, three months later, when I went back there, both machines were working properly, which was awesome. So, you know, customer satisfaction, even in an arcade with a free play option, it's still the, if having the working machines is priority one, that should be priority one A. Everything else is kind of secondary, or at least the way I see it, it's secondary. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, just having customers saying, oh, that was a, that was a fun time, you know, I'm coming back, or taking your girlfriend there, and or your girlfriend just having a blast, and saying, oh, that was cool, I loved it, let's go back there sometime, you know, or something like that, you know, I mean, I remember when I first started doing these on-the-road segments back in 2017, even before I had the podcast up and running, you know, I, I just thought about doing all of these segments because that's one of the reasons why I really got off my ass and really started doing the podcast in the first place. Because I was just having all of these thoughts going in my head about uh, the memories about the arcades I've been to, um, the lengths I would go to as a kid to find arcades. 
which were pretty, you know, pretty extensive, to be honest. Um, the, you know, just the good experiences I've had, the bad experiences I've had, the horrible experiences I've had once or twice, you know, you know, including, you know, somebody who was working at Spanky's who I thought was a friend of mine who basically spat on me because I made a joke. And at that point, I'm like, oh, okay. <sighs> but yeah, anyway, that's a story I'll talk, tell another time. Um, you know, you know, and, you know, being able to decorate the place, you know, with some memorabilia, you know, even if it's just, you know, stock photography, you know, which, you know, something just to sort of, you know, have the the player kind of, you know, look at it for a second and say, oh, okay, that's kind of cool, you know, and things like that. I mean, yeah, sure, the, all the things I'm talking about fall into the criteria that I've had, that I've come up with for arcade review, but I haven't come up with anything better, you know, when you add it all together about how good an arcade experience is, you know, when, when you walk in the place, if especially if you're an old head like me, if you walk in the place and you immediately feel at home and all those nostalgic tingles start, you know, resonating in your chest because this place reminds you of all the places you used to go when you were a kid, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, when you just feel like you've kind of come home, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good arcade. I mean, yes, I have full intentions on going to Chicago and, you know, going to all the various places in downtown Chicago and going to, you know, Galloping Ghost, which is out in Brookfield, you know, and the other places around and hooking up with some of the, you know, um, arcade regulars and dare I say luminaries in the Chicagoland area, you know, and getting their thoughts and their feelings about various places that they have gone or gone to. I remember when Galloping Ghost was starting to make a name for itself, a lot of the locals really downgraded the place because a lot of their machines didn't work correctly. You know, I remember that. You know, because that was something I remember because Greg Hansen was streaming one night and I was in his chat and I asked him, you know, what he thought about Galloping Ghost. He's like, it's all right, but, you know, a lot of their games don't work right. And yeah, I'm like, okay, I can, I can see why you might, why you feel that way about it. Because I think Galloping Ghost was really starting to starting to take off and when they started to take off they had to up their game meaning that they had to make sure that the machines that they have were working properly before they put them on the floor because yeah that that is that will be the death knell to an arcade that you know it's got all the games and the games look good and the place looks good and everything like that, but the games don't work right. When the games don't work right, then you might as well not even run an arcade. You might as well just put those in a collection 
you know, or put them in storage or sell them on Facebook Marketplace or eBay or wherever because, yeah, you shouldn't be running an arcade if you're going to put substandard games on the floor. That's just, that's just goes without saying. Alright, so I'm at a stop and I think I've kind of made my point. <laughs> I think I have. So I'm going to get this work day done, go do my home care and go home and relax and hopefully, you know, nothing crazy has happened at home that I have to take care of the moment I walk in the door. So, okay, this is Brian saying have fun out there once these arcades open up, which by the way, uh, side note, um, I think as of this date, which is June 4th, 2020, I think the arcades are going to start opening back up next week. I think. I think so. Um, a lot of the restaurants are starting to open back up. Uh, the fast food places are starting to open up their sit-down areas again, of course, with social distancing. But um, that and also the other businesses like bars and stuff like that, they're going to start reopening soon. So arcades are going to be coming. I mean, I saw on Facebook, I don't know if I spoke about this in another uh, episode, but I saw on Facebook where they had an arcade which had social distancing between the machines, which is kind of almost impossible if you line the machines up next to each other, like with, what, uh, half an inch of space in between them, if they're not, you know, touching. But, you know, so this place actually had, I think it's a place in Australia now that I think about it. I think it was an arcade down in Australia where they basically had these uh, clear plastic sheets in between the machines. So at the very least, it gave you the illusion of a little bit of social distancing and isolation if it didn't actually accomplish it. So I'm wondering if like the arcade in Brighton or, uh, you know, Pinball Pete's or any of the arcades around here are going to do that. I'm going to have to look into it, and of course I'll report back um, when I do my uh, open at the top of an episode. So, yeah, it, we'll see about that. Alright, so like I said, you guys out there, stay safe. You know, stay well. Have fun once these places open back up. Good gaming. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.